0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelations chapter 3, verses 7-13. through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and you, ha- you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let me hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: Thank you, Christopher. Well, hi. My name is Russ Ramsey. Perhaps we met just a little bit ago on the video, uh, which is weird for me. Probably great for you. I don't know. Um, it's good to be here this morning as uh, we we continue in this series of sermons to the seven letters to the seven churches across Asia Minor. And uh, so, this is my first ta- my third time preaching this sermon this morning. And uh, one of the experiences that I have had as a preacher, I've been preaching sermons for close to 20 years now, um, is that, you know, we, you plan out the sermon schedule, the texts and all that a long time in advance. And so I've, I've known for months that I was going to be preaching um, on this passage. One of the great things about, about doing that, as opposed to just kind of picking the passages you like and only preaching on those is uh, you get to preach on things that you may not have chosen uh, but are part of the full counsel of God's Word. And this morning, one of those things that we're going to talk about that's in this passage uh, is Satan. So we're going to talk about Satan this morning. And uh, uh, there have been a few times in my life when, when I've preached sermons that have kind of focused on darkness and the spiritual realm. And, and uh, one of the things that I've noticed is in my preparation – for that, especially in the, the, day, uh, the day or two leading up, um, I feel just kind of a general spiritual uh, attack, maybe, oppression. Um, I don't want to use too strong of a word, but I also don't want to use too weak of a word for that. But I find my, myself just kind of getting, getting sort of sensitive knowing that, um, that this is not a topic that the evil one wants us to talk about. And um, you know, I I found myself yesterday getting kind of short-tempered and had to apologize to my my wife for that. And um, I say all that to say we're here now, and uh, it is with pleasure that we get to talk about Satan from God's Word this morning. Uh, So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into this. Lord, I ask that you would give us ears to hear from you, what your Word is saying to us, what you're saying to us through your Spirit, through your Word. I pray that you would give us eyes to see what is true about us, what's true about you, what's true about um, the spiritual realm uh, that is very present in this world that we're in, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would, you would uh, cause us to only hear things that are true uh, this morning, and I pray this in your name, Jesus, amen. All right, have any of you, this is a show of hands questions, have any of you ever worked a summer job detasseling corn? <laughs> okay, I see those hands. Um. In my town growing up, I grew up in a little town in Indiana that was just, you know, a, a town carved out of the middle of a bunch of cornfields. It was, it was all around us. And detasseling was the summer job that almost every kid in our town would, would get. Uh, it was about three weeks of work, grueling work, hard work, uh, and kids would make more money than they had ever seen in their lives, and they would spend it immediately. And... Um, the, the here, here's what the job was. There was this. There, you would you would apply at the local farm bureau. It was a little half page job application that your parent had to sign, saying if if my kid loses a hand, um, that's fine. Uh, every parent in the county was cool with that, and uh, you, you would you would then report. A farmer would call you, and you would report to a. a you know, a bus and they would take you to a field and all these kids would get out and we'd climb onto this little spider-looking tractor. If you've never seen one of these, you should Google, Google uh, detasseling tractor because it's about the coolest looking tractor um, you'll ever see. And you'd stand on this little platform and the tractor would drive through the cornfields. Was, everything was elevated. It would drive through the cornfields and you would pull the tassels off of every stalk of corn as you passed by and that was the job. And so we would do this, and um, it was an important job. It was, it was part of, of, a, of a horticultural science that was happening. But I can tell you this, just about every kid that stood on one of those detasseling tractors had no clue what it was that we were actually doing. It was just, you want me to pull the tassel? I'll pull the tassel. We didn't know uh, what was happening, what the impact of the work was. We didn't know that I'm going to blow your mind about corn right now. We didn't know that the tassel is the male flower of the corn stalk and it carries the pollen and the female flower of the corn stalk is actually the ear of corn and all that silk, each strand of silk is attached to a kernel of corn. You didn't know that. I didn't know that until I Googled it. And that pollen would then fall down onto that silk and it would... And it would the, the, the seed that would grow on that particular ear of corn. And so what we were doing is we were making it so that there was only one kind of pollen that was fertilizing the entire field. And we were getting rid of this so that the farmers could make this hybrid seed that would be drought tolerant and disease resistant. We didn't know that. We were just pulling tassels. We were just involved in the process of doing this. We didn't know anything about cell division. We didn't know anything about germination. We didn't know anything about how things grew, but we were part of that process. We were part of the process, whether we understood what was happening or not. Why am I telling you about detasseling? It's to say this, that though we as kids were participating in this complex horticultural science, Most of it we could neither see nor comprehend, but we were in it. And from the planting of the kernel in the earth to the harvest of the crop, there was mystery in that. And not just for us, but for the most experienced farmer. Jesus said it this way. He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day And the seed sprouts and grows, but he doesn't know how. That's from Mark 4. This is true about the spiritual realm that there's more going on in this world, in the unseen spiritual realm, than we know. A lot more. And yet, when it comes to the spiritual realm, we're, we're, we're like, you know, kids detasseling corn where we're in the process, we're in the mix. We don't understand what's happening. But Jesus says, I still want you to do the job. I want you to report for work. He's, he calls us to things. He calls us to be his witnesses in the world. He calls us to love and to serve one another. He calls us to cling to the gospel. He tells us to resist temptation, to proclaim that Christ has died Christ is risen, Christ will come again. But even as we seek to do these things, there's more going on in us, there's more going on through us, there's more going on around us than we know. And this is where I want to direct our focus as we look at today's passage. I want us to walk through this text and along the way, look at what is happening in the spiritual realm and then apply it. And so we're going to take this text in basically two parts. Uh, the first part is we're going to focus on the opposition to the church in Philadelphia, and by extension, the opposition that the church today still faces. And then we're going to look at the progress of the church in Philadelphia, and by extension, the progress of the church today. So those are kind of the two, the two headings. First, we're going to look at opposition, then progress. Let me set some groundwork here. The town of Philadelphia, here in Asia Minor that's being discussed, Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love, was, was a town that was situated about 30 miles southeast of Sardis, uh, which another one of these letters was written to. And Philadelphia sa- sat on a fault line uh, where there were regular earthquakes, some of them devastating, the kind that that you would, you'd have to just do a lot of rebuilding of, of the city. And yet they kept rebuilding there. And the reason they kept rebuilding there in Philadelphia was because that town sat in a really strategic location. Uh, it was on the borders of three regions, Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia. And it made that town of Philadelphia kind of a gateway to the east for the Roman Empire. So it was a strategic place for all points east. And Philadelphia was established by the Roman Empire as a kind of missionary outpost, if you will, uh, and it was focused on the spread of Greek culture. So it was a cultural missionary outpost spreading Hellenism, Greek culture. And here is a place where Nashville has something in common with the city of Philadelphia, and that is that one of Philadelphia's key exports was culture… And the same goes for for our city. We're a city that exports culture. The church in Philadelphia seems to have embraced this outward-facing posture of their city by also being missionary-minded, not about the spread of Greek culture, but about the spread of the gospel. And our text indicates that that's what they did. They proclaimed Christ in this city where they knew that they were having an influence on people who were passing through, and the message that was going out. And so they proclaimed this and they were persecuted for it. But we also learned that they didn't abandon Christ in the process, verse 10 tells us. They were small, they had little power, which is any church that's trying to have an impact on the culture of its city. Any church, it doesn't matter how big it is, if it's trying to impact the culture of its city, it's, it's, it's small and of little power But they endured. They endured persecution. They talked about Christ. They didn't despair. And there's a point of application here that I want to just make briefly before moving on, and that is believers who live in a culture-making and culture-exporting city, we have a chance to be relationally and professionally invested in what's produced and sent out into the world. And a great many of us in this room work in culture-exporting work, whether it's economics, education, entertainment, medicine, a whole host of other things, where we have an influence to be a part of a team and to make things that go from here out there. And so we work at that, and we can't see all the ways that that influence will work itself out in the lives of others, but we do have an influence Nevertheless, and that's a great thing that the Lord gives His people. This is one of the reasons why we emphasize so much the importance between the relationship of faith and work here at Christ Presence. It's why we launched the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. It matters to us. It matters to us that we're, t- we're talking regularly, constantly, about the importance of how our faith and our vocation work together. Because we have influence. We have influence with the people that we work with. We have a contribution we can make of truth, beauty, goodness, how do, we, how do we professionally and relationally invest in and influence what's produced and sent out into our world in a place like this, Nashville? The, the big umbrella answer to that question is really the, the, the great commandments. We love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love our neighbors, we love ourselves. That's the, that's the big umbrella answer to that question. What it looks like in our work is this. It looks like we have high standards of excellence, We have concern for people over outcomes, that we build for the common good, that we serve with humility. We stay in the mix when things get hard. We care more about the fame of Christ than the elevation of a brand. It looks like caring about the ethical impact of the work that we do and the systems we work in. We treat people fairly. We treat people with the dignity that they've been given as image bearers of God, all of them. We work to be good stewards of the planet. We tell the truth. We believe the best. We extend the benefit of the doubt. We seek to build up. We oppose what tears down. We fight injustice. We contend for beauty, truth, goodness. This is how we shape culture through our work. It's through the kind of people that we are and the kind of work that we do as people who know we're coming in the name of the Lord. We don't know a lot about the exact ministry of the church in Philadelphia, but what we do know is they they were exporters of the gospel in a city that traded in exporting culture. And we know that though they endured persecution and it didn't stop, they persisted in bearing witness to Christ. And we know that Christ promised that he would keep them from the hour of trial. Why didn't Jesus just tell them, hey, you guys might want to lay low for a little while. You're taking it on the chin right now. I see that. I'm going to give you uh, just kind of a break from all of this bearing witness to me. Why Why didn't he do that? The answer, and it's an answer that pertains to us as well, is this. Christians have no greater mission in life than to bear witness to Jesus. We have no greater mission in the world than to bear witness to Jesus. Our highest calling is to love Christ and to be open about it. For our love of God to be known in public. To be salt, to be light. Christians are called to be, all of us, gospel exporters. And so that's what they're doing. But this letter, it's a letter of encouragement, but it's more than that. It's not simply a letter of encouragement to keep going during hard times because just a cursory read of this letter reveals that really what this letter is addressing is something that's happening in a spiritual realm. And there's more going on in that realm than these believers could know. One of the reasons we know this is because of who is dictating this letter. It's Jesus, the risen Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. So that's a first clue that this letter is about more than just what's happening on the ground. This whole letter is basically Jesus saying to a faithful persecuted people, hang on, hang on. This only lasts a while and it's going someplace, unimaginably grand and victorious and glorious. So stay in it. And then he uses this, this term to describe the opposition. And it's in two of these letters, actually, this term, the synagogue of Satan. Let's talk about that. What does that mean? Notice that the opposition that these believers are facing is more than mere human resistance. This is true for us still, right? Paul writes in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. There's more going on than we can see as we work these fields. What is the synagogue of Satan? As Westerners, we can't help but hear that term predominantly as a put-down, as an insult. It's just Jesus is getting in a, a, a jab. He's saying the worst thing that he can think to say because of how displeased he is with these people. That wasn't Jesus' style. In fact, what Jesus is doing here is he is actually using this term as a theological assessment. And it's more of a statement about Satan than it is about people. Jesus is using very precise language when he calls this the synagogue of Satan Follow me here I want you to come with me on this I might feel weird for some of you to be talking about the devil but just hear me out Apparently what was happening here's from the text what we read is the persecution that these Christians face came at least in part through leaders of a local synagogue And Jesus says these persecutors are not real Jews And that they will one day bow in deference to these Christians, and they will say, in effect, you were right, and we were wrong. Wrong about what, specifically? Wrong about the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. That's what they're wrong about. In fact, that's what this whole letter is about. That's what the persecution is about. The persecution is about, ultimately, who Jesus is. When the gospel first went out into the Roman Empire, when the Apostle Paul was on his missionary journeys, whenever he would enter a town, almost without exception, he would always go to one place first. Where would he go? He would go to the synagogue, right? Why would the Apostle Paul enter a town and go and preach the gospel in the synagogue first? The answer is because the Jewish people were expecting the coming Messiah. They were expecting the coming Messiah. And what is the message of the gospel? The Messiah has come. You're expecting the Messiah. The Messiah has come. The Savior of the world who would come from Eve, whose seed would crush the head of the serpent. The descendant of Abraham through whom the whole world would be blessed. The heir who would reign on David's throne forever. The message of the gospel is Jesus is that Messiah. The synagogue of Satan, then, were those who, when presented with Christ as the long-awaited Messiah, not only rejected Him, but actively persecuted those who accepted Him in an effort to destroy Christianity. Actively persecuting people who believe in Jesus in an effort to destroy Christianity is, in its essence, satanic. Is it not? Jesus is saying, any person whose mission is to destroy faith in him is a mission that person shares with Satan. Satan's mission was then and still remains an effort to conceal or deny the lordship of Jesus and to dissuade people from believing in his saving work. And Satan is good at his job. We are—I mentioned it a little bit—you know—we're Western people, we're post-enlightenment people. We are in a cynical generation, for the most part, a cynical age where we we, we kind of smirk even at the idea of a devil. Stuff like that is not scientific. It's not—it's uh, something simpler-minded people believe. And we have no idea how arrogant of a statement that is to make because of how great of a minority position that even is to hold historically. But we do that. And Satan's goal is to convince us that Jesus is not Lord, to deny his lordship, to conceal him. Ironically, one of the ways Satan goes about that task is by concealing his own existence so that we won't believe in a spiritual realm at all. Another way he does this is by making himself seem to us like a cartoon. Right? C.S. Lewis wrote about this in the Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read the Screwtape Letters, uh, you should. Uh, The premise of the book is basically... The book is written as a series of letters from an elder demon to a younger demon, giving him counsel and advice on how to keep the person he's been assigned to from believing in Jesus. And it is one of the most profoundly insightful things I've ever read about how people work spiritually, the things we believe, the things we reject, the ways… Anyway, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing, but, but here's one of the things, an excerpt from one of the letters… The Elder Demon writes this, he says, the fact that, quote, devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. This is the logical fallacy of if something doesn't make sense to me, it must not make sense at all. It's the old pitchfork and bifurcated tail trick, right? If the devil can conjure an image of himself that no enlightened person could accept, the enlightened person will deny the devil's existence altogether. The truth is, human beings, historically, in every nation and tribe ever known, practically, have had some kind of instinctive belief in a spiritual realm, something beyond us, something in the shadows, something in the heavens, something we by our very existence are tied to even though we can't See it. It's like a sense that it's there. You know who did not wave off the existence of the spiritual realm? Jesus. Uh, Let me just give you a few of the ways that the Gospels show him interacting with the spiritual realm. He prayed. He prayed to God, his Father. He prayed out loud. He taught about the kingdom of God. Not once, not twice, all the time. You look in the Gospel of Luke and you will find that a great many paragraphs begin with the kingdom of God is like. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God all the time. He said that he is going there to prepare a place for his people here. That there's something happening there. And it's not just that. He also taught about hell. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. Jesus cast out demons, a lot. Like, he did this regularly. But for our discussion, the coup d'etat is Jesus actually conversed with Satan Right? His temptation in the wilderness. He talked with and to the devil about his mission, about why he was there, what he had come to do. Talked about Scripture. He quoted Scripture. The devil quoted Scripture. The audacity of Satan to try to even dissuade Jesus of who Jesus was to get him off mission, to present to him another way to get people to bow down to him. Jesus routinely acknowledged the spiritual realm, and he spoke of a real evil one. And there is a real evil one. There, is demo- there are demonic forces In the world, we live in a culture that is um, suspicious of that and not very superstitious. Uh, But we're a small part of the world. Most of the world is not that way. But we are. But here's the thing Satan hates you like a lot, Just, just hates you and wants nothing good for you. And wants to confuse you and wants to entice you to just, just. See, his mission is not to get us to love him more than we love Jesus. Satan's mission is not to make you a Satanist, it's not to make you love him more than you love Jesus. His mission is just to convince you to put your love and ultimate hope in anything but Jesus. And then he's done. He's done his job to get you to put your love and ultimate hope in anything other than Jesus. Money, sex, power, reputation, success, empty spirituality, self-improvement, fitness, winning arguments, pleasure, fill in the blank. Anything that you can look to and say, actually, my hope is here Satan just wants that to be anything other than Jesus. Remember, it was Jesus himself who used the term synagogue of Satan. His term. And with that comes this sober, important reminder of a couple of things. One, Jesus was not into a universal religion. But in one that was focused on him. And two, we have this important reminder Jesus is zealous for his identity to be known and proclaimed without obstruction. He isn't playing around. And in this passage, we're reminded he's not playing around, and we are working in his field. And more is happening here than we can see. That's the opposition, the progress that's happening. It's, it's amazing. This passage talks about the key of David and the open door. What are these things? The, the key of David refers to access to God's kingdom, his eternal kingdom, that one would come from David's line who would reign on David's throne forever. And Jesus is that ruler, and the book of Revelation is driving hard to that point. Not only is Jesus the Lord of that coming kingdom, but that coming kingdom in Revelation is described at the end of this book as a place where God himself would be with them as their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's what's coming. And there's an open door and the door stands open and no one can shut it. What is that open door? It's a reference to entry into God's eternal kingdom. Here's our call to public faith, right? Is that in the New Testament, the image of an open door almost always refers to the work of bearing witness to Christ for others. Telling them there's an open door for you. As long as we draw breath, Christ is that door. He tells us in John 10 that he is the door by which people enter into his Father's kingdom. He describes himself as the door all must pass through to enter the kingdom of God. And the door is open through which people enter into a relationship with God through faith in Christ and that door stands open and not even Satan can close it. So progress, there is an open door that is not shut and it will not be shut And it's not merely a door that believers pass through, but it's the door that then Christians are called to tell others about. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. This is not a call that only belonged to the church in Philadelphia. It belongs to all believers. How do I know that? Because of Christ's great commission to the church. Right? That we would exist to bear witness to him, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So what progress came from churches like the church in Philadelphia? Pick a New Testament church. What progress came from their ministry? Because you'd be hard-pressed to find one that wasn't persecuted. You know what progress came? You're sitting in it. This happened. And what does this represent? This represents millennia of people not shutting their mouths about the gospel. This represents people proclaiming Christ in the face of persecution and suffering unlike anything most of us in this room have ever experienced or will ever experience. People bearing witness to Christ when it costs something, working in the fields of the Lord, trusting that He knew what He was doing, and that he would bring the harvest. And so though persecuted and oppressed and opposed, these early churches kept proclaiming the gospel, and it made its way here to this very room. The gospel has made its way around the world, calling many to faith through the witness of God's people and the power of the Holy Spirit working through them. And we now work in the fields of the Lord in that same thing and we are waking, and we are sleeping, and we don't know how the seed grows. But as sure as I stand here in this place, it grows. Because we're here, it grows. There is a real battle happening in the spiritual realm. Hold tight to the gospel, Jesus says, so that no one may seize your crown, and he will hold on to us. The world will know that he's loved us. And there will be a great celestial, mysterious ceremony in which Jesus will descend with the new Jerusalem and he will be given a new name, a name that we will not know until that day. And order and peace and joy will be restored forever. And in the meantime, we work in this field knowing the work is important, though we only know in part what's happening But he brings the harvest. Christians are not meant to be the gospel's destination. The gospel is not meant to come to us and stop. It's meant to come to us and then pass through us. It's not ours to keep, which makes bearing witness to Christ an ethical matter. It's not ours to keep, we have to give it away. And God works. He works through seemingly small witnesses in the world. He does more than we can see, more than we can know. He pollinates the world through the voices, the few courageous people who proclaim Christ. And we can't always see how. And we don't understand all that is happening on a spiritual level, but he's at work. He's at work. I would recommend that sometime this week, maybe today, maybe over lunch, that you talk with somebody and tell them the story of things that had to happen in order for you to hear the gospel, things you had no control over, things that God was doing, some seemingly simple and conventional, some maybe supernatural and impossible. But if we were to all share our stories with each other, one of the things that we would find across the board, every one of these stories, involves God using the testimony of other people to help us know him. We don't always know we're doing it, but this is what he does. Jesus sets before us an open door. Nobody can shut it. And through that door is eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus. If you have not passed through that door, will you? Perhaps even these words in this scripture today, the Lord is using to bear fruit in your life, the fruit of faith. And if you already have passed through that door, will you be public about it? Will you tell others about it? Because this is the call of the Christian. It is our call to bear witness to Christ. May it also be our legacy. Pray with me. Father, you give us your word and you tell us that it is living and that it is active and that you are at work. And so we thank you for that, Father. Even though we don't really know all that that means. Lord, I pray that as you call us to this communion table even here, that this would be a reminder that there is more happening than we can perceive, that you tell us that you're with us here in this place, that you commune with us. That this isn't just a symbolic memorial service, of something that happened a long time ago, but we commune with you here. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for mystery. Thank you for the mystery of the Christian faith. Thank you for so many things that we can't answer with certainty about how you work and what you're doing in the world, because it keeps us in a position of of humility, of having to acknowledge that there are things that we don't know, but that we have faith. God, I thank you for the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, help us to find ourselves in these letters, to see ourselves clearly in the light of your word. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.